Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Conjure. Ed, hello. I'm just trying out different styles there. I like it. it. There was a certain bombast there that, you know, it, it, it upped the tempo. I, you know, I think it sounded why, why ridiculous. Shouldn't we? Well, I mean, but the people who talk on the radio, I'm told, often have sort of, you know, uh, an affected um, forcefulness yeah. to their personality that, you know, maybe this is just more professional. Well, I don't know, because I think do I people know? who listen to podcasts are not looking for, I don't think they're looking for... Um, radio i don't think they're looking for sort of radio slickness i think they're looking for us you know as we are come come as you are as, as i say i hope so i actually i had i got to meet someone who listens to the podcast mm-hmm. yesterday um someone from our our parish whom I, I hadn't met before stopped by the house and was dropping some things off thank you very much um and and we got, we got chatting for a little while and it turned out he was a listener to the podcast uh and i i told him and as as we do everyone and i meant to completely sincere that i'm always amazed that anyone listens to this so <laughs> i don't know what people are looking for here i'm i'm glad they're finding it i guess i but, understand you know, what people we i are... think this is the best catholic conversation each week i i, I listen buddy we get, we're trying to well yeah but i think that of every conversation <laughs> i have i you know okay as I'm we just surprised people as agree we are, but I, you know. also you know like um let's sell the let's sell the product a little bit here you know what i'm saying okay right, so anyhow right, so you met them and uh, no, they were just—they were just extremely sweet and kind and wonderful and supportive. Uh, not so much—I mean—about the pillar and our work and everything, which was great, but also mostly about you know the having of the new baby, which is you know moral support. Uh, definitely, definitely welcome around yeah. here right now. Uh, so that was nice. Um, no, and it just—it just underscored to me that you know we that people do listen to this, which is of enduring fascination to me because I'm. I'm just grateful. I mean, if you you can look at the stats, a a, a number of people listen to this. And I heard, this is a great transition. I heard from a fair amount of them um, this week. I don't know about you, but I heard from a... I got some feedback from last week. I wonder if it's for the same reason. I I don't know. I don't know if it's the same reason. I heard from a number of people um, over the last uh, few days who who wanted to weigh in on the conversation that you and I had about evangelization in the parish. Oh, that's not what I heard at all. Why don't you go ahead and say yours, and then we'll talk about that. People were very angry at me for my definition of the boundaries of the Midwest. Oh, I see. Because you, what what did they want you to to say? Uh, people from the Dakotas, Kansas, Nebraska, um, what I would consider to be Plains states, um, were very upset that I had excluded them uh, effectively from the the umbrella of the Midwest. Which you know, hey, it's you, you know you can't you can't mail a letter to the midwest the definitions out there to be disputed i my my i, I the the what i'm resting my case on is any place where people can be where you can expect to encounter people unironically wearing cowboy hats that's, that's the, west. the west that's the or west some, right or some iteration of i and i have met people wearing cowboy hats in places like you are a fan of the uh the university of nebraska football team if i'm not mistaken i am yes and i have on occasion observed the crowd at on television at Nebraska games, and I would say there are some unironic cowboy hats present therein. Would that be that, fair? Uh, yes, that could be. Yeah, and and you know, Herbie uh-huh. Herbie Husker wears a uh, wears a wears a hat. 
Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. People don't wear cowboy hats in the Midwest. I don't. This shouldn't be controversial. Okay. And it's not to say that people who live in the plains are bad people. They're, you know, God's country. I, you know, I'm not. There's, you know, nothing wrong with that. I just, I don't know. I feel like there, there's. I, I accidentally tread on a, a set of cultural toes here that I didn't know existed, and I'm very upset. I'm very sorry if I upset anyone with my, um, you know, with my flippant. Uh, narrowing of the category of Midwest. It was not my intention. One person wrote in accusing me of being an East Coaster, which I confess really hurt me. Um, and, and, you know, I just, you know, I didn't mean anything by it. I just, you know, with the, the Midwest has to mean something. It can't mean everything. Otherwise, it means nothing. I just, that's I, all. Um, are you feeling kind of tired, Ed? I'm feeling really <laughs> tired, J.D. Because, so I mean, tired. that was quite a... Quite quite an excursus on this feedback um i'm sure you're tired and we can talk about that in a little while um but i did not get as much obviously did not get as much feedback uh about the nature of the midwest as you did but one person did write to me um uh, a a michigander uh, who wrote to me to cite the northwest ordinance of 1787 as the basis for what we collectively call the midwest he says it's the basis the northwest ordinance of 1787 is the basis for what we collectively call the midwest because it provided a path to statehood to all the ter- territories northwest of the River Ohio, which obviously would include Ohio. So he says this means Ohio is most definitely a Midwestern state. Um, then he says another proxy is sort of the the, the real Big Ten school states. Um, Missouri is lawful but not valid, as he says, which I which I like. Um, but anyhow, that was I like yeah, that, that was an interesting idea about um, the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. It was certainly based upon more than I had based my thesis on or or yours. Um, but while I did get that feedback about the nature of the Midwest, most of the feedback that I got um, from our show last week was about people who wanted to weigh in on the conversation that you and I had about uh, evangelization and the nature of um, kind of the evangelical mission of the parish. Um, I heard from some people who wanted to point out sort of particular sort of projects of evangelization, people who talked about the, the Alpha Project. I don't know if you're familiar with the Alpha Project, but the um, the Alpha Project. Is that the Alpha Course? The Alpha Course, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I, it was. Uh, you you would see signs for that uh, in in lots of Anglican. Yeah, I think it's churches. very popular in the United uh, Kingdom, and and I think it's more popular in Protestant contexts. But the Alpha Course is spe- essentially a sort of course in the basics of Christianity for people who who are what might be called seekers or who are invited to become what might be called seekers. And there's a sort of Catholic iteration of it. So a few people mentioned that to me. A few people sort of reached out to to want to draw a distinction that I think is interesting between evangelization and proselytization, which is to say, you know, that evangelization is born out of relationships and um, the practice of charity in those relationships and the witness which comes from those, which sort of provide credibility for the articulation of um, the gospel. I think that's true, right? You know, proselytization, they would say, by contrast, is just sort of a something like a guy on a street corner with a Bible sort of saying, repent, the end is near. Um, I Kind of like St. Paul. Well, this is the point that I want to make. I, I, I appreciated that. And, and obviously those people aren't here. So I'm going to respond to them without them being here, which I guess isn't fair. But um, uh, I, you can respond on their behalf, I suppose, if you're inclined. But, you know, there was a point that, that a few people reached out to make, which is to say, um, yeah, evangelization is effectively developing relationships outside of our Catholic bubble and, um, and, and developing really sort of loving, sincere, earnest, authentic relationships outside of our Catholic bubble in which the gospel might be credibly witnessed and credibly presented, um, in which a person is not sort of instrumentalized in a way that they might be seen to be in in, in what could be called proselytization. And I, I, I appreciate that. I do think 
Um, I, I do think that there's something true about that. And I do think, you know, in any sort of form of evangelization, the person who, who is hearing the gospel can't be sort of looked at as, um, you know, a customer or um, apart from the fullness of their identity and their dignity and their own um, being a, a made in the image of God. And at the same time, I don't know, because I look at the, I look at the, the model of the New Testament, um, which is sort of um, to proclaim the gospel in public places, you know, for Paul to go um, in Athens and elsewhere and, and, uh, and, and to proclaim the gospel in, in public places in direct and sort of unmediated open ways. Um, that seems relevant to the mission of Christians in the 21st century. I, I appreciate the relational point. I, I really do. Um, and I appreciate the way in which a, a, a sincere relationship can become a mechanism for sharing the gospel. And I, I've certainly, I think, even experienced that in my own life. And at the same time, um, I, I don't know, because there is this New Testament model of um, sort of public proclamation of the gospel. And 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 where does that fit in? I, I would agree. I, Speaking as someone who has proclaimed the gospel on literal street corners and in public squares in cities, um, I, I don't consider that to be ipso facto proselytization. I, w- I would say that proselytization, at least to my mind, um, takes a uh, an abstract view of the people to whom the gospel is being proclaimed. That the goal is, if you like, to affect a um, a juridic conversion. That the important thing is that um, there is, uh, if you like, a, a sort of uh, intellectual assent. That is given. That it's like, okay, fine. I, I, I'll take what you're saying. And authentic evangelization is, of course, to bring people uh, to an encounter with God, to an encounter with Christ, uh, to affect a, a conversion of heart and the whole of life. That this is what we all want for ourselves, first and foremost, uh, as well as everyone else. So I, I, I think that, at least for me, I feel like the distinction is not so much about um, methodology. It's about intent and how you view the people who are being approached in this. Um, you know, St. Paul, I don't think anyone would say was proselytizing. Um, but as you say, he, you know, he went to Athens and that's what he did. He stood up on a street corner and he announced the gospel public and he was ridiculed and hounded out of the city and everything. But, you know, a couple of people uh, were saved. And I think that, that I think maybe is, is a, at least for me, a key distinction is that um, from a proselytizing point of view, you would call Paul's mission in Athens a failure because uh, he did not affect the conversion of the city. Um, but I think Paul would call it a victory for Christ if even one person heard and listened and was saved. And I think the concern for the individual um, is is a key distinction for me. That, um, you know, you, say, you talk about the instrumentalization of the person. I think that's important as a distinguishing characteristic of proselytization as a pejorative um, is that it becomes about well uh, this is about numbers this is about bums on seats this is about um, you know taking you know if we want to be historical about this it's about taking the statue of Zeus out of the temple and sticking a cross in its place and whether anyone actually got much out of the swap um, is neither here nor there the important thing is that the swap was made Um, whereas evangelization is very much about conversion is about announcing the fullness of Christ. Yeah. Does that it, make sense? It, it does. It does completely. I was thinking about, you know, I, I, I was thinking, I'm reading this great biography of uh, St. Francis right now um, by, uh, I, I can't which remember one? what it's called, but the author is a Dominican named... No, which Francis? Saint, I meant. Didn't I say St. Francis of Assisi? 
No, you said just said St. Francis. No, well, everyone, I, it would be my conjecture that everyone else gets, um, you know, an, a, 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 the Seraphic Father need no reference that he is sort of the Francis, qua Francis. Maybe, but my first school was Francis Xavier. My first parish was Francis Xavier. And so yeah, sure, St. Francis Xavier, I, good. I, I, Who's I, he named I, for? What do you mean? Who is St. Francis Xavier named for? Oh, I, yeah, fine. So, but he's, he's still That would be like if there was a kid he's, down the street yeah. from me named Beyonce, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's like Beyonce. He says, and they're like, oh, the kid down the street. No, not the kid down the street, man. Freaking well, Beyonce. Uh, hang on. If the kid down the street named Beyonce also went on to be a multi-platinum selling recording artist, artist I would say no, there's legitimate. I think that, 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 I think that Beyonce, too, has to have, has to, I think that Beyonce has claimed to just being Beyonce, and Beyonce, too, has to make some distinguishing, um, you know, identifier. You, you, you're you're free to continue with this Francis Xavier erasure if you want, but you have given me through all of this exchange a wonderful excuse to title this podcast "The Two Francises," <laughs> which is going to get a shed load of clicks, and people are not going to get you, what they expect. Um, you know, you yourself though, just a minute ago, you were like, "Well, as Saint Paul said, blah 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 blah," and I wasn't like, "Oh, Saint Paul of the Cross, <laughs> Saint Paul Miki and Companions." <laughs> Why? Because he's well, the guy who gets the well, name. Well, if you're in the Bible, uh, you know, I feel like that's just, come on. Um, yeah. So, um, so I was thinking, so I'm reading this great biography of St. Francis of Assisi, Francesco himself. Um, and uh, it's, it's the, I, I don't remember the title of the biography, but it's written by this Dominican named uh, Father um, Augustine Thompson or August, August Thompson, something Thompson. Uh, it, it's anyway, it's by this Dominican. And uh, it's really the best biography of, of Francis that I've ever read. It's just fantastic. I would encourage everybody to get it. It really sort of delves into the humanity of the saint, um, the motivations and um, and uh, perspectives of St. Francis that are, I, I think are often sort of um, glossed um, into something far more rosy uh, by, uh, by a lot of hagiographies or turned in various ways by people who sort of want to make St. Francis of Assisi into the sort of the, uh, the um, garden statue of their particular set of pet causes or whatever. So... Um, there is a lot of Francis yeah, appropriation. Yeah, there's a ton of Francis appropriation. And I think this strips a lot of it away. But, you know, just the other day, I, I read the the scene of Francis's um, evangelization of the Sultan, you know, and I guess it's 1219 or something like that. Francis goes down to the Crusades and um, and decides, you know, because he wants to preach the gospel to the, to the Sultan. And um, he has a really hard time kind of getting in, you know, for the cardinal who's kind of in charge of the, uh, the sort of siege of the city uh doesn't want to let him in and you know these kinds of things but uh, eventually he's let in and first he and his companion are kind of beaten but then after they're done being beaten they're brought to the sultan and and um, francis is very direct you know i'm here to proclaim to you the gospel um of uh, our lord jesus christ by which is uh, uh, you know by, by which your salvation might be achieved and you know just sort of spends a couple of days urging this guy to repent and the guy kind of brings out all this Muslim um, uh, scholars, you know, he says like, well, you can debate religion with my religion guys. And he brings out all these religion guys and Francis sort of talks with them for a little while, but he, he, he really has his eye on the Sultan. And so the religion guys go away and Francis kind of keeps, keeps at it, like calling him to conversion, calling him to conversion, calling him to conversion. And uh, ultimately the Sultan, as you probably know, you know, offers that Francis and his companion can like stay um, there, I, I think, I can't remember now, but I think they, if they were, if they would accept Islam, they can sort of stay there. Or maybe even if they wouldn't accept Islam, I don't remember, but he kind of offers like, well, you guys can hang out here, but I'm not going to become a Christian. And, uh, Francis is like, no, um, but you do need to become a Christian before your death. And anyway, then they leave. The Sultan does not, um, become a Christian, but, um, 
but but the 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 singularity of purpose um, with which he proclaimed the gospel is the point that I want to make, and um, that seems to me to reconcile even with what Pope Francis has talked about, like in Evangelii Gaudium, his sort of own document on evangelization, where he talks about evangelization about the preaching of the gospel to those who don't know Jesus Christ. Now, I do think there's a question about what the context of that preaching is, but at the same time, I think we we have to sort of affirm that we have this duty, our parishes have this duty, um, our families have this duty, especially as we are talking about an increasingly secular culture, to identify what it means to be evangelizers. And that includes being accompanists, if you will, and, and, um, and um, being in authentically charitable and, and certain relationships of servitude with others and sort of watching the, the feet of others and these kinds of things, but um, to the end of the proclamation of the gospel, because there is ultimately nothing sort of uh, any other act um, of love pales in comparison to the act of love, which is the proclamation of the gospel, it seems to me. And it seems to me that's a direction that, that Pope Francis is working in and eventually Gaudium as well. Yeah, I would agree. And I think the Pope's, the Pope himself has often said there's a distinction between proselytization mm-hmm. and evangelization. And I think um, at least how I've heard him speak of these two alternatives is the difference is, as you say, the sort of to be a, an accompanier of the people um, that, you know, the idea isn't you just run at them, yell that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and Lord, and then run away that you have to. <laughs> You have to help them along the way that you, you know, there is a, there's an ongoing proximity and a a responsibility, um, a personal responsibility that comes with the announcement of the gospel. And I would certainly agree with that. Well, and part of what you, um, part of what you identified um, last week is that the sort of precedent of evangelization is to understand um, the questions which people are or are not asking themselves, like about the meaning of their, of of life and the universe and, and these kinds of things. And I, I think that's true, and that is where where sort of discernment of culture and relationship and context and these things are uh, are important. Um, but I, I think for me, the sort of bottom line of that conversation last week is that these are things which um, can easily be drawn into abstraction, as I think we're doing right now. Um, and yet, you know, as I think we talked about last week, the imperative of um, that invitation to the salvific relationship with Christ and His Church, which is the Christian life, is. Um, becoming all the more clear and all the more manifest, and it, it, to, to my mind, all the more urgent um, for, for Catholics living in America right now, not just because sort of the demographics, our churches are going to be, it would be wrong to think we need to evangelize because otherwise our churches are going to be closed um, and we want to keep them open. Um, but the closure of parishes does, I think, convey to us the significance of the secularization that is born of a host of, of factors. I, I think that's right. Um, I... I have a theory, and I'm loath to advance because I worry. It will, no, I, I worry it will be misheard, and people will. Um, I tell you what, if I, I'll, pay- I'll reflect back to you how I hear it, and then if you think that I've misheard it, if I think it's offensive, I'll be like, "And I can't believe you said that," and then I'll give you a chance to explain what you meant. Okay, um, I feel like there, when there is hesitancy, either individual or institutional, to really lean into the proclamation of the gospel as the fundamental orientation of the Christian life and the fundamental orientation of the parish, it is often because there is a, I don't want to say a doubt, but a, a lack of perfect faith in the efficacy of the announcement of the gospel that... Um, to announce the gospel requires 
a conviction in it first. And so there's often, I feel like, um, an institutional hesitancy to put at the center. I mean, we, and we talk about this a lot um, when we're discussing documents that come out of different um, church institutions, be it at the level of the Bishop's Conference or, you know, pontifical think tanks or whatever else. And, you know, one of the things that people like to do is sort of, you know, control F and check for Jesus mm-hmm. and, you know, see how many times Jesus is mentioned in a church document. Yeah, and often it doesn't get much of a look in compared to other rather more secular um, yeah, keywords. Yeah, but that, that, I mean, you, you would agree that that kind of proof texting is like a I would agree that it's not helpful, but I'm saying that this is the mentality behind it, that we talk about um, we talk about the absence of uh, the proclamation of the good news from an institutional perspective. I think sometimes what's there is uh, a lack of confidence that actually putting the kerygma in the middle of everything um, will be viewed as, you know, slightly either jingoistic or or unhelpful. That it's like, well, yeah, fine, that's, you know, that that's the thing you say, but we've really got to get serious here. And to get serious, we need a plan. And the plan needs to be somewhat more mechanistic, somewhat more abstract, somewhat more, you know, jargonistic no, or whatever I, it is. I, it sounds and, to me like what you're saying, and maybe I'm mishearing you, but it sounds to me like what you're saying is, um, people, Catholics are reticent to do something called evangelization because they don't have confidence in um, in the possibility that it will be uh, that that it will be uh, that it will bear fruit, and perhaps that means they just don't have sort of confidence in sort of the the confidence that they think they do in the gospel qua gospel, even working in their own lives or the or the power or presence of the Holy Spirit or something like that. I I don't. Uh, that's what I'm hearing you say. Perhaps it's not what you, you're saying. It's not quite what I'm saying. It's certainly not what I'm okay, trying good. to say. Then you can fix um, it. Well, or you can say it. Um, I'm sure you said it well. But go ahead. Uh, I do think there is sometimes in evidence a lack of confidence in the efficacy of the proclamation of a gospel on its own of the gospel on its own terms. That um, there there sometimes feels like a cultural aversion to just saying, "Well, what are we going to do? We're going to proclaim Christ," and that's the answer. And I feel like often people say, well, you know, yeah, but we got to have something behind that that's a little more mm, mechanistic. I don't know. Um, well, that, that the, the, the evangelizing zeal that I think Pope Francis talks about a lot requires a, a particular kind of faith in the power of the announcement of the gospel. That, you know, you deliver the message and you trust that the Holy Spirit will be efficacious through its delivery. And I I certainly have experienced this in my own life. And, and I can think of conversations where there was a certain amount of where I shied away from, you know, getting charismatic or whatever. And it's just like, oh, I don't know if this person's going to hear it or whatever. And not having that sort of total abandonment to the idea that, well, no, that's that's up to God. The, the, the mandate is preach first the gospel. And... You know where where the seed falls. That's that's someone else's concern. Does that make I, it does? Sense? But I think there's something. I, I would I would suggest there's something more that that if there's um if there's a lack sort of of confidence in in as you say sort of proclaiming the gospel for me at least I think as I talk with other people I I think part of that may be um a sort of a lack of understanding of sort of how that fits into our institution and our institution's culture and and by that I mean um to say um. Uh, to say, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word with, was with God, and, and, and that profound truth has trans- transformed my life in these ways. Um, Christ has come, and Christ is coming. Um, the follow-up is an invitation um, into something. And uh, I think I think for a lot of people, there's just an uncertainty about what the something is, you know? Um, 
Right. But okay. So, okay. So here's where I think you and I are talking slightly across purposes is I, I don't mean that you just announced the gospel and there doesn't need to be the sort of things we were talking about last week to, to follow up on how you accompany people in the process of hopefully entering the church or whatever. I'm not saying that. Sure. We need all, we talked about that last week, but I'm saying that even putting the idea of the announcement of the kerygma, the announcement of Christ, um, at the heart of everything the church does, even internally, I think sometimes is 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 just not as explicit or as central as as it could be. Well, tell us a story. I mean, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. Ed, so, Ed, tell us a story. Uh, okay, so there was one occasion. This was I don't know uh, what years. It's twenty twenty one. It's still twenty twenty one, right? It's 2021. Yeah. Okay, I'm really tired yeah. right now. Um, this would have been, I don't know, 2013, 2014-ish, give or take. And um, a group from my parish was doing evangelization. What is to do popular evangelization, specifically popular evangelization um, during the Easter season in the in the Sundays following Easter to make a an attempt to announce the gospel, to announce the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the season of Easter. And we thought about different ways we could do it. And what we ended up settling on was uh, we went to the city council in a city and we said, you have this park. We understand that it is possible to have public events in the park. We would like to have a public event in the park. We would like to have it for an hour. Uh, we would like to have it on these five Sundays uh, for the same hour each week. And we'd like to have permission for a stage of modest height and a sound system. And they said, sure. We paid the fee and for one hour, we had a presentation on stage, which was just a charismatic announcement of the gospel in the context of usually Vespers. That's awesome. Yeah, it was That's in cool. the context of Vespers because it was usually late afternoon. Um, and then people, some people would stop and listen, some people would not. Um, but the people who stopped and listened, we had you know other people from the parish there who would go and try and engage them in one-on-one conversation and speak to them and say, you know, you stopped. What did, you know? What are you looking to hear? What's you know? What's up with you? And to give you know their own experiences of the faith, to give their own experiences of life, and to see what came of it. And then if people wanted to bring them to uh, the nearby parish to meet with the priest to start um, you know a, a sort of quasi RCIA catechesis. That's really cool. It ain't you know it, that's what I mean. It's like you know, they, and did anything come of it? Yeah, about as much as happened when Saint Paul stood on a hill in Athens, like five or six people. But you know what? I still talk to those five or six people and it, you know, if I've achieved nothing else in my life, I played a small part in that. You know, I'm yeah, good that's at that. really, really neat. Well, let's talk about another person who, um, who proclaimed the gospel this week because Ed, you watched the press conference for the new Bishop of Crookston, Minnesota. I did. Um, and I was, I was surprised and delighted, JD. What happened was Bishop Andrew Cousins, heretofore Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis, uh, arrived in Crookston for his sort of first press conference. And on, there, on, this was on Monday. This is on Monday. And um, there were there was some discussion and more than a little acknowledgement of the difficulties that have faced the Diocese of Crookston in the last months and years, where there was a very long, in fact, the first Vosestes investigation of a U.S. bishop, uh, and it ended up in that bishop's resignation at the request of the Holy Father. Uh, that bishop, Bishop Hopner, went in April of this year. Um, he resigned um, in April this year, yeah. Yeah, and he had a, a farewell mass of celebration for his time in leadership of the diocese in which he, uh, I, I would say, offered perhaps an incomplete 
or an imperfect acknowledgement of uh, of the situation in the diocese that had led to his departure. But anyway, the point was there has been, I think, a crisis of confidence amongst many Catholics in the diocese of Crookston as a result of the situations that led to the departure of Bishop Hopner. And well, they had a very hard couple of years because the bishop was accused of having. Um, We've talked about this on the show before, but the bishop was accused of having like pressured a, a, a man into, um, and and it seems the facts are established. I don't have to say it was accused. The bishop pressured a man into uh, recanting an allegation of clerical sexual abuse. He had admitted to allowing other priests to serve in ministry who, by all accounts, had no business being in ministry. He had admitted to sort of failing to follow both the church and the state's laws on mandatory reporting. And these things were, and, and some good priests felt like they had, um, you know, been... Uh, um, their ministry in the diocese had been severely limited, and these things had been dispiriting for many, many people in the Diocese of Crookston and were fairly divisive, I think it's fair to say, for the priests of the Diocese of Crookston. And so, um, you know, people were like renting billboards that said, like, we need a new bishop and stuff. And so by the time of the resignation of the bishop, the diocese was really hurting. The bishop indeed did say, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry if uh, effectively, you know, I'm sorry for any failures that I made without sort of owning or naming or identifying those failures, and and said that at his own farewell mass, which he threw for himself. Um, so by the time a new bishop was announced for the Diocese of Crookston, which happened on Monday, yeah, there was a lot of uh, hurt and discouragement among the Catholics in the Diocese of Crookston, and probably some people suffered crises of faith from that. Right. And for a new bishop coming in, which is what Bishop Cousins is, I, I watched the press conference, and I was expecting and would not have been shocked or particularly disapproving of if he had done what I would have expected any bishop walking into this situation to do, which is to um, to, set, to stress the importance of listening and learning lessons and bringing in new policies and how you're going to rebuild trust from the ground up by, you know, um, really hearing, you know, all the different sides of the, you know, investigations and all, and all of the sorts of things. And he talked about some of those things and he talked about them very well. But what really struck me was he said, and I quote, the main thing I would say is this, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Lord of our time and he is the Lord of every time. And he always answers prayer. I, I was just like, what, what a, what a great answer. And it wasn't just that he said those words, it's that he said them with conviction that I, I was, when I was watching this, I got the impression that um, he really believes that the answer to the problems facing this diocese into which he is coming um, will be primarily addressed by faith in Christ. And he seemed really to sincerely believe that. And I found that incredibly encouraging because that is, yeah. of course, what I would like our bishops to believe and how I mm. would like our bishops to respond even to very difficult situations. Now, Bishop Cousins went on to talk about his experience of managing the sexual abuse crisis in the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis, of which he's had considerable experience. He has a, a long and established track record of working with victims of abuse and you know all that other sort of stuff. So he's got that resume too. But I, I was just really surprised and encouraged to hear a bishop putting first the announcement of Christ. I just thought that that's, you don't see that very often. That's why it jumped out at me. Yeah, and That's what yeah. I was trying to say earlier about saying, you know, <laughs> the, the ability to put um, with confidence in the center of our discourse in our ecclesiastical life, the announcement of Christ first. And the reason I know it's not done as often as it could be is because when I do see it done, it's surprising. Yeah. That's right. I didn't watch the press conference because I was I had to do something else. But um, some a, a priest in Crookston, actually two priests in Crookston, texted me later that day to say that when the bishop met with 
um, his priest, you know, he had, a, he had a meeting with um, with the priest of the Diocese of Crookston, that when Bishop Cousins met with his priest, uh, effectively the first thing that he told them is, he, he effectively, in acknowledging that there needs to be change in the diocese, um, the first thing that he told him them is, um, what will catalyze that change is when all of us are making a, a daily holy hour. I heard in that. Words, in, in, I heard in, that. An invitation into prayer. And, uh, and again, I think, you know, the point that you're making, like, um, even we could say, oh, that's interesting, he, he's... Um, is Bishop Cousins purporting to evangelize his priests? Yeah, why not? <laughs> why not? Right? Why not? Right? Um, yeah. Um, if, if, if Bishop Cousins judges that what his priests need is a call to a deeper a prayer life, a deeper life of intimacy with Christ, um, then uh, then why not? Right? Of course, uh, that he would be. Um, well, calling what his priest wouldn't want that call from their bishop? Like yeah, I, that's the call I would want from my parish priest. I just uh, assume that yeah. it would work up the food chain. Yeah. Um, uh, I heard a lot, but I heard a lot of priests say that the, the, what it expressed confidence in that, or not a lot of priests, the two priests who texted me, I suppose, but I heard the, the two priests who, who texted me say that what sort of, um, what sort of encouraged them about it was um, precisely what you're saying, this sort of visible and manifested faith that um, the the spiritual life, um, the spiritual life of the priests of the diocese would have tangible and um, immediate and um, preeminent, you know, effect on the life of the diocese, and therefore that there's a certain kind of preeminence to um, discipleship with Christ that comes ahead of um, all the other things that one could say might be useful for reform, whether those are sort of programmatic things or whether those are kind of, um, you know, sort of the listening sessions, as you say, or fraternity or any of these other things. But no, the thing which will precede all of those things they heard was um, intimacy with Christ. And for some of them, that was deeply encouraging. Now, for some, perhaps that was terrifying because um, because not all seed, fall, you know, because some seed falls on rocky soil, even among a presbyter. So for some, perhaps that wasn't heard or, or whatever, but I think there were some for whom it was really meaningful. Now, you transitioned into talking about the appointment of the, the new bishop of Crookston, Minnesota, which is really interesting for a, a couple of reasons. One, the, the, bishop, the former bishop of Crookston was the first bishop to be investigated um, under the norms of Pope Francis of Vos Estes Lex Mundi, and the first to resign under the norms of um, Pope Francis of Vos Estes Lex Mundi, and therefore the new bishop of of, um, of Crookston, in a certain way, carries the obligation of, or, or um, yeah, will have, I think, um, uh, a spotlight on him as he begins, which is extremely unusual for the bishop of a very small diocese in northwestern Minnesota, but will have a, a spotlight on him as he begins, precisely because there will be a question about how will he respond to what has happened in the diocese, so that effectively the response was um, to walk into the press conference and to, to sort of say, um, you know, to proclaim Christ, uh, as it were, I think is um, is all the more, uh, you know, all the, all the more significant or, or um, may, may well set a template for something that we, we've sort of been talking about for a while, which is sort of, will the crisis of the last few years be the catalyst for um, a deeper kind of ecclesial renewal? Yeah. And I mean, in the same way, another project that Bishop Cousins has been working on um, is he's the guy, at least as I understand it, who's been quarterbacking the program for a national Eucharistic revival. For Yeah, because he's the chair of the um, of the Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis. So while he's been the chair of that, that's been his uh, right. thing. Yeah. And this to me, and, and this has been sort of um, the not quite as, the, the somewhat overlooked um, parallel to the document on Eucharist on the Eucharist, the so-called Eucharistic coherence document that the USCCB have debated whether or not they should have, whether or not they should draft, whether or not they should publish, and they'll debate it again next month, whatever. Um, but to see that these two things, you know, are an example of parallel 
necessity. One is sort of explanation, exposition, um, intellect, programmatic theory, if you like. And the other is the experiential living of the faith, the, the confidence in the sacraments, the confidence in the gospel, the joy of all of this, you know, Pope Francis speaks about the joy of the gospel that, you know, this is the sort of thing you get, um, or hopefully you will get from a program of, you know, a Eucharistic revival that, you know, the, the source and summit of the Christian life is a source and summit of joy in the Christian life. Um, so I just, I found that, a, a, a an interesting side by side that, you know, you can have all of these things that we're talking about after Fosestes of, you know, proper mechanisms and structures and, you know, report lines of reporting and, um, you know, legal reforms and all that stuff. But we've said all along, the thing that's going to make all of this go is the people who use it. That, you know, no legal reform is going to, is can um, reform character. Um, but what can be transformative is the gospel. What can be transformative is Christ. What can be transformative is a radical commitment to God and to faith in his ability to be transformative wherever he goes, which, you know, was what I saw as the sort of blend on offer in this press conference on Monday, which I found really encouraging. With all of that having been said, and we can come back to talk about the Eucharistic Revival document um, and all of those things, the appointment of um, of Bishop Cousins, and, and again, you know, we've sort of pointed out the way in which we think that things which Bishop Cousins said on his first day as bishop were, were striking and significant and worth noting and those kinds of things. You know, the, the, the man is going to have, a I think, a tough road to hoe because um, the, the diocese is not without real and, and serious sort of challenges internally. And, you know, the challenge of any bishop in a rural place is, um, you know, in, in small rural dioceses is um, uh, to be able to um, make use of, like, identify and make use of the gifts of the people who are there. And uh, and the challenge of just, you know, few, fewer people means sort of fewer hands for for the labor often, and, and it can be hard, therefore, to encourage vocations and those kinds of things. But it can also just, I think, probably be hard to sort of encourage um, the apostolic work of the church. And so, you know, obviously, there is the sort of um, the the residual dysfunction that comes from a bishop who had to sort of resign under scandal, and the way in which the presbyterate is likely divided by that and those kinds of things, but then also just the challenges of being a small rural diocese with limited resources in 2021. Um, and especially in Minnesota, where dioceses have um, been, uh, you know, where the where the sexual abuse crisis has been especially prominent. Although Crookston, I think, is one of, I think, one of two dioceses in Minnesota that has not declared bankruptcy. So it's got that going for it. Um, but, you know, so he's not, the, the, the man is not going to be without, um, I think, serious and significant um, challenges. And and, uh, and some of them are e- evangelical and apostolic, and some of them are administrative, and he will rise to them or uh, not rise to them, I suppose. Um, but the the appointment of Bishop Cousins, I think, also just sort of points to um, kind of the fact that we are effectively like coming up on. I think more than you and I have talked about, we haven't really talked about it before uh, very much. But we are we are sort of coming up on the three year mark uh, for Vos Estes Lux Munti that it will be. Um, in the first half of next year, that the that the document will be at the three year mark, and the reason why that's significant is because um, Vos Estes Lex Mundi, which is Pope Francis's set of norms for dealing with uh, allegations of neglect or um, or misconduct on the part of bishops or ineptitude or administrative bad leadership that has that regards sexual abuse, misconduct, coercion, those kinds of things, um, is provisional. It only exists for three years, and then the Pope has to sort of um, make it provisional again, make it permanent, or replace it with something else. And uh, it's worth, I think, taking a look at 
what we've learned thus far. Yeah, and, and but I mean also, um, not just what we've learned so far, but also I mean the 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 playing field continue has continued to shift over the last three years. Rose Estes is by no means sort of the last thing that's been written on this. We've got a brand new book six on penal law for the code of canon law, which comes into force in December. Um, and I think a lot of uh, what was in Vos Estes is now going to just be in the code. And I think um, I'm trying to put myself back in the headspace I was in when I was reading Vos Estes for the first time and some of the questions I had about it. Um, because a lot of it was, I, at least as I recall, my my initial reaction to it was there were some parts of it which were very clear and very good and some parts which didn't make total sense or at least didn't hang together. Um, with some of the other canonical issues and and sort of statutes that were enforced, um, and I think as a sort of investigative charter, Vosestes did look to hold water at the beginning, and I think broadly speaking has that we've seen a lot of investigations convened under the norms of Vosestes. Uh, we've seen several in this country. We've had them in, um, gosh. I'm trying to trying to think how many I could name off the top of my head now. We've had Crookston, we've had Brooklyn, we've had uh, was it Raleigh, South Carolina had a brief Vosestes investigation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, not of the diocese, North Carolina, North Carolina. Excuse me, um, not of the diocese, but of the of the bishop related to a previous uh, assignment earlier in his oh, career. No, sorry, the diocese. You're right. It is South Carolina, the diocese of Charleston, South Carolina. South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Buffalo was not a Vosestes, I seem Buffalo to Buffalo was not a Vosestes investigation. It took place after Vosestes had been promulgated, but it was not a Vosestes investigation. Right. Um, but, but either way, uh, the, we, we've seen a number of these kick off. We've seen a few of them. Fewer than have been announced have concluded. Um, but the results have been uh, a mixed bag, not in terms of their credibility necessarily, but in terms of the results they return. And I find that to be in itself encouraging because one of the things that makes me most suspicious of a new process is if you get a uniform outcome each time. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that so, mean, yeah, that raises certain questions. Yeah. yeah so seeing this process having been deployed across a number of different dioceses in the United States and seeing some bishops come out exonerated, some bishops come out being forced to resign, um, some bishops... Uh, being declared innocent and like no semblance of truth to the accusations against them. Um, I I find that broadly suggests the credibility of the process. Well, the most we can say, right, is that, that it broadly suggests the credibility of the process. And this would actually be my criticism of the process that has unfolded in the in the wake of Vosestes Lex Mundi is that, um, yes, it is true that there have been diverse outcomes to the, to the cases which have been concluded, but the reason for that is entirely unknown, right? Because there is no, um, there is a, there is no um, access to the information sort of which led to either um, a bishop resigning or uh, a bishop being sort of exonerated by a Vosestes investigation. And um, as a consequence of that, for better or for worse, uh, I, I honestly don't know what the answer is there. I mean, for, but for better or for worse, as a consequence of that, one can only sort of try to like peer as through a glass dimly, I suppose, but sort of peer into a process, an opaque process and and sort of read the tea leaves of what it might mean that some have been exonerated and some haven't. I mean, it, it's not. It doesn't mean by necessity um, that the process is credible by virtue of the fact that there have been different outcomes. And so we're sort of trying to look and see is that true or is it not true. But it, it, to my mind, there are some procedural deficiencies of Vosestes, but the greatest deficiency of Vosestes is its opacity. 
And um, and I, I don't expect that the Holy See, if it, I guess my question to you is, do you think the Holy See will be revising Vos Estes in the next six months, you know, which is how, how long they have? But if they are, I don't expect, to be perfectly honest, that they will um, revise or look at that opacity. I don't think it's sufficiently on their radar. But to me, it it is it is a serious issue because it um, while it purports to be um, a just process and while it outlines a just process, um, having taken place effectively by a secret tribunal, there's no way of affirming that or identifying the veracity of that. Okay, so a um, couple of thoughts on that. Uh, short answer to your first question, do I think that Vos Estes will be substantially revised in the next six months? I don't know about substantially, but yes, I do think it will be revised before it's reauthorized because I think there will be a stripping out of the articles in it that sort of appeared to constitute new delicts in the church and that have since been folded into the new book six. So I think you will see that removed and mm-hmm. it will just simply be redrafted to defer to. That's a reconciliation revision, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just to say, yeah. well, we have a different law now that covers this. So we don't exactly. need this law. So I think yeah. that it will be, the process will be revised down to be more um, narrowly focused on what I think was its primary aim at the time, which is a, a sort of investigative procedural charter and how to. Um, as for the opacity question, no, I think there's no chance they're going to revisit that whatsoever. However, I do not expect, and I don't necessarily think they have to, but there are other things that I think they do need to do and that um, what you're describing is a problem that does need to be addressed, but I'm not sure that revising Vos Estes and bringing more transparency to that investigative process is the way you do it. And I tell you for why. One is if looking at sort of outside of the canonical sphere, if there is an extended investigation into a person following accusations and no charges are brought, it is not expected that every interview or process of that investigation is made publicly available by law enforcement. Um, nor necessarily should there be. I, you know, there, there are questions of rights to people's good names, things like that. Um, I, I think there there is a question about how much transparency you can expect from the investigative phase. Uh, and I don't know that I'm necessarily 100% invested in maximum transparency in the investigative phase. I don't know that that's what it's for. Uh, on the other hand, one of the things that was shown by the Crookston example that I was dissatisfied with and had hoped that in the post-Vostestes world we would see an end to was exactly how it concluded, which was you had an investigation, investigation reported to Rome, Rome read the investigation, it accepted the conclusions, and the bishop resigned. And that to me was the problem, was not anything that was done under the norms of Vostestes or how it was done, it was what was done afterwards. And what was done afterwards was um, the bishop was invited to submit his resignation by the Pope, and he did. Now, what I think would serve the interests of justice and transparency is if you then said, well, hang on, if there has been effectively, because this is what we're talking about, a criminal investigation which has resulted in, you know, grounds for indictment, Mm -hmm. that should then lead to a proper process. That should lead to a judicial process that, you know, the, what I sometimes refer to as the, the method of the ecclesiastical pearl handled revolver should be taken off the table that, you know, if they, if you've had an investigation into a guy, you've established that he's broken some laws uh, and there's a penalty or punishment that should be imposed for that, including, for example, deprivation of office, then you have to see that through to the end. And it's in that process that transparency comes in that you say, these are the formal charges. This is the formal return of verdict. 
this is, you know, this is a summary of the proofs that were laid against and why they were deemed credible. And this is the penalty imposed that where I think any process loses its, um, loses confidence, uh, loses the confidence of the people who are supposed to have confidence in it is when you say, well, the process is secret and the result is summary. And that's the problem is I would say it's the result. Now, if you have, for example, a bishop who's investigated for the violation of various norms related to the handling of allegations of clerical sexual abuse, and the bishop is the subject of reports um, in media, for example, <laughs> outlining the claims of various uh, people in the diocese saying, well, this is what happened. Da, 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 da. There needs to be, I think, an answer to that. It's not sufficient for the bishop to just resign at the end of it. That, that or doesn't... to be exonerated at the end of it, right? Well, or, I mean, to be or to be exonerated, exonerated at the end of it, right? So, if, so if there are if there are sort of publicly known allegations of misconduct or or acts of omission or acts of subruption or whatever, um, and for them to be to be judged to be sort of insufficient for action or um, not to lead to a resignation or something, it, it does not seem sufficient even to sort of. Um, answer that way and say, well, we looked into that and it wasn't credible, period, in terms of sort of giving any confidence that there was a fair shake at the thing, if indeed um, things, you know, have been, have, if indeed things are public. Now, it, I guess I don't agree with you. I appreciate that, the, I appreciate the challenge of making public the, in a sincere way, and I, I say this sincerely, I appreciate the challenge of making public sort of um, even publicly known, the investigative phase, the initial investigative phase of a, of a process um, in response to an allegation that um, making that known has consequences for the, you know, for the long-term sort of um, uh, reputation of a person and, and you know, that, that there may be an allegation that is simply not true and these kinds of things. At the same time, it, it seems to me, and look, I have not argued sort of consistently that everything that is done in the life of the church must be done um, openly. In fact, I have argued frequently that USCCB meetings would be far more effective and far better served by um, taking the television cameras out, that that would lead to, I think, um, a, a, a serious sort of improvement in the outcome of USCCB meetings on any number of fronts. So I'm not sort of just saying every single thing that happens must be must happen um, with total transparency, as it were. Um, however, um, I think that there is a virtue to erring on the side of... Um, uh, uh, a transparency about the existence of a process than to sort of being, um, than to being, um, uh, I think that, I, th I don't think that, th that the Congregation for Bishops would say we're being secretive, but then to appear to be being secretive um, at a time when there is sort of concern about um, the integrity of judgments made in the absence uh, of, uh, of uh, sort of observation. Let me meet you halfway here. Let me offer an olive branch. Let me offer... Um, okay. a, a, a partial okay, reconciliation okay. of this. I would think it would be greatly helped if um, the institutional church, not least the Congregation for Bishops, was a little less squeamish about talking about it. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot more would be forgiven in terms of demands for total transparency in the investigative process if they didn't insist on behaving like every time Vos Estes was invoked, it was basically double secret probation. Right. Yeah. And you had to drag, as we have on more than one occasion, kicking and screaming out of them an acknowledgement that, yes, there is even an investigation taking place. Right. That kind of ridiculous 
NKVD, we're not, you know, we're we're the boogeyman in the night and you're never going to know who we're investigating or about what or why. That is unhelpful. Right. I think that you could have a lot more buy-in to the notion that, well, this is an investigative process. We're seeing if there's anything here. And no, we're not going to give you a blow-by-blow of what we mm-hmm. find or who we talk to. It would be a lot better if they were simply a lot more forthcoming about saying, yes, there's been a complaint or 19 complaints. And we are having an investigation and the investigation is being done by this bishop. And we'll let you know when it wraps up. That that alone would, I think, be incredibly helpful. Um, yeah, we'll let you know when it wraps up, even with a sort of three point summary of what we of what was alleged and what was found. Yeah. And I mean, for yeah, example, mm-hmm. looking at the one that was closed recently on Bishop DeMarzio in Brooklyn, that they returned a decision that. Um, it did not meet even the semblance of truth that in canonical language, the accusations against him were manifestly false or frivolous. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't, I don't need a lot more detail to figure out what was deemed to be the um, outcome of their investigation into the accusations against Bishop Marzio. That is fairly definitive. Mm-hmm. I don't have any information about how they got there or how they evaluated it, but at least there's no ambiguity about what they decided. It's not that they thought he was a little bit guilty of some things, right, but right. maybe he didn't yeah. quite rise to the level. You know, to say manifestly false and frivolous, okay, that's there's clarity of result there, if not methodology, and I'm reasonably happy with that. Um, you know, I why you know it's, it'd be like going to the FBI and saying, well, what did you find? We found absolutely no grounds to charge anyone with anything here. Well, why? What, who'd you tell you? It's like, I, I don't need that. Like, if there's a gray area, then yeah, I think that does need to be a little bit better explained. But at least for an absolute exoneration, no, I'm I'm reasonably comfortable with there not being a huge blah, blah, blah. But again, what would really help is not... But an absolute exoneration, again, an absolute exoneration is an exoneration based on the, by the sort of the manifestly false and frivolous standard in the church is one which says, this could not have happened because this person was not in this place at this time as he is alleged to have been, or this person was not in this place at this time as he's alleged to have been, or the account... Um, bears such little resemblance to reality that um, you know that it that it can't be it can't be taken seriously in one way or another. And I don't think that um, giving some clarity about that this was judged to be manifestly false and frivolous because while um, while it, it was said to have taken place in a parish in New Jersey in 1974, in fact, from um, 1970 until 1981, this priest was assigned to Rome, and therefore there's no semblance to. I don't think that like some summary of the uh, of the impossibility of the thing um, is, isn't helpful to explain why a conclusion is reached. I, I don't know that that would be unhelpful, but it does open... Especially, by the way, because a manifestly false and frivolous determination after an investigation of more than a year is extremely interesting. Th- that's a low bar of proof, right? I mean, you, you would agree with me about this. I, I don't know... It's the lowest I, I, bar of proof. It's the lowest bar of this, proof, right? To achieve the Whether semblance has of truth a just means truth in canon law physically is, possible. It's the lowest bar of proof, right? So if you say, we had this investigation in which we involved a third-party firm headed by a former director of the FBI, and we spent more than a year on it and probably a couple coins on it, and what we came out with was this was manifestly false and frivolous. The reason that surprises me is because it seems like the sort of thing that would not take more than a couple of weeks to, to resolve um, it, with, that re- with that resolution because you're just crossing off plausibilities. Now, if you say it was not founded after you're, okay, it was judged to be not founded, and maybe you can give some details about that, maybe you won't. But um, I actually think that in after an investigation of more than a year, um, the determination of manifestly false and frivolous is somewhat surprising, absent, ex- mm. absent explanation. I don't know. and But this I guess this goes back into what I was saying. In the like, same way that I would be surprised if someone were found guilty in a day and a half. 
Right. Mm-hmm. No, I take your point. Um, but what I was going to say, and, and this is kind of linked um, about, I can see how providing partial answers like that or summary answers like that opens the door a little bit to something which they may not be wild about is, are you then saying that the church is going to get in the business of publicly knocking over every false allegation of abuse um, made against a cleric or at least against a bishop? You know, is, is the church going to get involved in a sort of point by point public rebuttal of that? And I can see why they wouldn't want to do that if for no other reason than I would imagine that it would create civil legal concerns. Um, so there's that. As for the the question of, you know, how long does it take to, discuss, to decide that something is impossible? I... Yeah, no. When you're dealing with something that happened 40 years ago and having it has been my experience in dealing with allegations of historical sexual abuse in the canonical form that often there can be the equivalent of uh, an anecdotal and evidential bowl of spaghetti thrown at the wall. And yeah, if you've got to pick through every noodle, that can take time, especially but you if don't, ev- that's the thing is you don't have to pick through every noodle. I mean, that would be that would be an understandable if the thing went to the CDF and the CDF said, you know, they're they're going to there's a, going to be a paucity of proofs here. And because there's going to be a paucity of proofs, we're not going to have a penal process or, you know, there there are, there's no proof which rose to the level of manifesting a penal process. But again, manifestly false and frivolous is an extremely low standard. No semblance of truth is an extremely low standard. And uh, and it and it seems to me to be one which is relatively easily achieved or not achieved. Perhaps on the other hand, it would be if you're going to make that declaration in public, I would feel more confident if you had been utterly utterly exhaustive in your okay, okay. methodology to make sure when you say this is complete bunkum, um, you you know there's not going to be a nasty surprise lurking around the corner. And maybe uh, you give us a summary of the reasons. Maybe. Now, another thing, another aspect of Vosestis that's worth looking at, and, and, and really we're kind of bringing this up because I do think we should pay more attention in the next six months to whether or not Vosestis is going to be revised and, and how. But another thing that's worth asking is whether there are sufficient um, sort of conflict of interest provisions within Vosestis, the sort of prevailing approach um, to the document, you know, the prevailing approach to investigations in the document are that the Metropolitan investigates his suffragan bishops and the suffragan bishop investigates his, uh, in- investigates the, the, the senior suffragan bishop investigates the Metropolitan. I mean, this is, you say there are sufficient conflict of interest protections. I would argue that it's almost um, there inextricable from the core that there is. Right. In fact, in fact, what, and, and maybe this wasn't recognized. I mean, I'm not sort of, I don't want to assign um, bad motives here. I think maybe this wasn't just thought through, but it does seem to me that one inevitable consequence of Vos Estes Lex Mundi, where the person, where the, the archbishop of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, of a metropolitan province who is going to be investigating his suffragan bishops inevitably has a, a set of personal relationships with him, um, which complicate the, the investigation and for better or for worse, um, allow for the possibility uh, of, uh, of questioning the integrity of the investigation, you know, um, just by virtue of the nature of the relationships. There is that, but I mean, this was a very contentious issue when Vosestes was being thought about. And in fact, before we knew Vosestes was going to be a thing, when the USCCB When the were, metropolitan model was proposed by the USCCB. Yeah, and yeah. it was the, what was effectively the metropolitan model, which is effectively what we have in Vosestes, or at least the preference for the, Vos, for the metropolitan model, the presumption of the metropolitan model, absent a decision otherwise by Rome, that this is just more ecclesiologically in line with the church's hierarchical structure. But again, you can't, I I mean, yes, the relationships are there. They are always there. They are going to create in some cases problematic conflicts of interest, or at least the suspicion that this was not necessarily done with quite the objectivity that it could otherwise have been. 
But on the other hand, you know, that's that's kind of what the metropolitan model of ecclesiastical provinces is, is it that that's how the food chain works. And to look at trying to erect something that's sort of totally outside of it, it's like, well, that that to me, I wonder if we're saying is, well, yeah, we have these things called metropolitan archbishops and we have these things called ecclesiastical provinces. We have these things called suffragan bishops and we expect those to be coherent units with relationships of mutual responsibility and trust, but not when it matters. And I mean, maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe there is no, maybe there is no, at least in the current climate, um, credible way in which you can rely on the metropolitan model, so-called to deliver a result that nobody's going to raise an eyebrow at, but I don't know that it's reasonable or probable to expect that there's going to be anything else on offer. Yeah, I don't think that there will be, but it's worth talking about because good governance actually, good good governance and good sort of metropolitan, the metropolitan archbishop is, is not precisely responsible for governance, but is responsible for sort of coordinating um, uh, the possibility of pastoral action among the, the dioceses and his province. It's an and elder brother them together for more than It's anything. an elder brother role to bring them together to discuss burgeoning pastoral problems. And I'm not reading that from the code, so if I didn't say it quite right, somebody, I'm just saying it. The metropolitan effectively kind of like brings the guys together to talk about what's going on. And they do ha- they do have some formal things. They work together to submit names for the for prospective bishops in the future. And theoretically, he could um, uh, he could call, uh, theoretically, he could call for a council, I think. Couldn't he call for a... Yeah, provincial uh, council, yeah. Yeah, it's provincial the council, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he could call for a provincial council. So um, those kinds of things. But, but um, good sort of leadership in those ways presupposes good relationships, right? I mean, a, a good metropolitan necessarily has relationships, positive and meaningful relationships with um, the bishops of his province. And one of the reasons is that it's his responsibility to let the Holy See know if anything's going on with the guy, like if he's doing okay and if there's anything the Holy See needs to attend to and these kinds of things. So that necessarily presupposes real fraternal deep intimate relationships and those are the kind of relationships i think we want bishops who live near each other to have real fraternal deep intimate relationships but good investigation and good sort of judiciary action um, presupposes a distance Um, and so the the notion that the person who is best equipped for fraternal collaboration support and coordination is also best equipped for um, the the cold dispassionate sort of distance of investigation um, seems to me to be flawed. Now, a lot of people would say, yeah, but the metropolitan who's charged with investigating a bishop in a Vosestis investigation isn't actually the one, like, walking around with a magnifying glass, you know, kind of looking for clues or interviewing people or whatever. Mm. It's just his job to coordinate it. Is that always but, the case? One, we don't know because there's no transparency. But two, um, it is his job, you know, if he has a third party, if he has third party people do the investigation or whatever, um, it is his job at the end um, to read the report and write a voter to Rome with his assessment of the thing. And that assessment in Rome is going to carry some weight, as the vote of a bishop always does, is going to carry some weight. And so um, I, I I don't think that this is going to change. And I think you're right, Ed, no matter what sort of the structure of Osestes would be, that, that you know, it's going to raise one kind of eyebrow or another. At the same time, I do think that structure, the, the, the experience of the last three years suggests that that structure lends itself to a certain kind of criticism that could be avoided. You know what I would welcome? What? And into the clericalist presumption at the heart of the problem you are outlining, which is that only a bishop ultimately can investigate a bishop. Now, do I want to see a national lay board charged with overseeing? No, I think that would be ecclesiologically alien to the hierarchical constitution of the church. I wouldn't support it. 
didn't support it in 2018, don't support it now. But if you wanted to talk about um, an independent provincial office of promoter of justice. Yeah, there we're talking. Now so the promoter, we're yeah, talking about language. Cool. The promoter of justice is effectively in canon law is the person responsible for bringing forward the you know um, potential charges of a, a delict, a canonical crime, among other things. So if you sort of had, so he's effectively the the public prosecutor of the diocese, and in most places the promoter of justice role, although it exists on paper and probably someone's appointed to it, is not sort of robustly you know utilized. Well, and this diocese. is something I have said right the way along about diocesan review boards and their sort of mission creep to turn into both prosecutorial bodies, investigative bodies, and juries. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I don't like is it often takes it takes the place of the promoter of justice's role and that if diocese had a robust and well-developed office of promoter of justice who you know was the first port of call when there was an accusation or at least a, the canonical first port of call I, I think if diocese were comfortable with using that model which is you know i'm not suggesting they invent it that's what the code calls for um then I think there would be a lot more of a comfort level with, well, yeah, we may need, we have, we have interdiocesan marriage tribunals in this country. Mm-hmm. We sometimes have provincial uh, marriage tribunals that are formed, you know, either at the state level or at the provincial level. Um, and to say, well, actually, no, what we're all going to do is we're all going to chip in and we're going to have an independent promoter of justice's office to deal with this sort of stuff. Yeah. And then no one of the bishops can step on the report or fire him or whatever else. And, you know, I, I got no problem with that. I think, I think be that very would be cool. cool. Yeah, I you think know what, very it cool. reminds me of, you know what I would welcome? I would wish that in the con... So I, we have seen and talked about the questions for the local phase of the Synod on Synodality, which are about sort of the church's uh, evangelizing mission and um, teaching office and sanctifying function and these kinds of things. But I would wish that in the context of the Synod on Synodality, there was more consultation about the church's legal and disciplinary structures. Because... Because I got some things. To, well, I, I got I some show, ideas. I, we have a show for them, but I would like them to be on the record in some in some way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I I, I agree. I, I don't think that I don't think that if we either of us walked into the synod on synodality and said like, well, we want to talk about the revision process for um, for vos estis lex mundi ahead of its confirmation at year three, we, we would get a a whole lot of a hearing. On the other hand, I don't think we would get a lot of pushback on whatever ideas we said, and therefore they'd be presented as. The diocese believes that X, which would not be a bad thing. Maybe you wouldn't in your diocese. I suspect <laughs> whatever contributions I tried to make in my diocese would not be would not be adopted passively or actively as the de facto opinion of the diocesan synodal process. Maybe I'm misreading that, but that's just my so, guess. So, so we have talked a little bit about evangelization. We have talked a little bit about. Um, the uh, the the uh, the new bishop of Crookston, Minnesota. We have talked a fair amount about the uh, possibility of revisions to Vos Estes Lex Mundi. And before we go, Ed, um, uh, we got to talk about the baby. Uh, How's the baby? The, yeah, the baby? the baby is fine. She has <laughs> all of the. Uh, I gather the usual um, temperamental issues that newborns come with around. Um, feeding and wanting to be held and sleeping at irregular times and um she's done a very good job at sort of affecting an existential hold of life change mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. i yeah i'm i'm very tired i have a long uh series of ever renewing bureaucratic responsibilities that come along with having a new child that i am struggling just like getting the baby enrolled in insurance and that kind of yeah stuff. uh you know it 
it's interesting. What I find interesting is uh, it, it has proven much faster to get her a social security number than it has a birth certificate, hmm. which says something hmm. about D.C. local government, I suggest. Hmm. But um, we will see. Uh, yeah, I'd, it's just a lot. And nobody ever tells you stuff. Like, this is the thing that we've discovered is it does take... I, I don't I don't know that I believe in the adage that it takes a village to raise a child. I think there's some... I think there's more hippie nonsense than not in behind that whenever it's invoked. Not always, but often. Um, but I do think uh, it takes a a large coven of women to, to help a mother, a new mother settle in mm-hmm. uh, and new parents to settle in. I think we're, you know, that, that, that is proving true that the doctors tell you virtually nothing. Um, and then they, they presume knowledge, you know, like by, what, like what does the doctor presume that, you know, well, um, so for example, when I had, as I have many, many younger siblings and when they were young, it was understood, at least I always understood that the kid sleeps on its stomach or its side, because that way, if it throws up in the night, it's not going to aspirate on its own sick and you know, all that stuff. But now it's law, apparently that the kid has to only sleep on his back, which is fine. You know, whatever. I will. Take, I had no idea there was a law about that. Well, it's, I, I say law. It is the universal opinion now that newborns have to sleep only on their back, only ever right. on their back. JD, only on their mm-hmm. back. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, so this was this. They told me this. What they didn't tell me was that you then have to make sure the kid spends um, a certain period of time every day on its stomach, because otherwise it'll get a flat head from only ever oh, being on its back. Sure. Yeah. 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 I yeah, mean, but they don't tell you that half. From- Oh, sure. They, they just, just presume sort of, that the you pediatrician know about just asks you snotty questions about it and sort of infers knowledge. And it's like, it's like oh, oh, have you been putting the baby on its stomach like, every day? Well, no, just, why you, would I do that? Leading, the kid is, but they can't lift its own head. It goes into a fury if questions. you do that. Why so would I do answer, that? You usually know what they want you to say. You just say it so they can check their boxes. Yeah, I know. But I just... I, I, you told me the other day that you you were just coming... You were coming to the realization that the kind of tired you are feeling might not be a transitory um, a, a transitory condition, but uh, but a but a permanent condition or at least a, a, a deep seated condition for you. Yeah, that's the hardest part. Is I mean this. I mean you 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 do the adrenaline thing. Like the first week was adrenaline, and the second week was still more or less adrenaline, although with some pretty interesting hallucinations thrown in there in the dead of night. Whatever you know, but you're running on fumes. But you tell yourself, you know, we just got to get through this, and then. My experience of week three has been slowly the reality starts breaking through. It's like, no, there's no getting through. Like, this doesn't end. <laughs> and well, what I welcome, f- what yeah, I know, welcome to parenthood. But I, I, I was going to actually say welcome to the suck. But either way, yeah. Um, but but it's it's a uh, it's a uh, it's it is the uh, it's that there's no I, escape. There, well, it's there that there's is. no escape, JD. And let me clarify Excused what I mean by absences. no. No, well, there's that, but, no, but uh, and those I have been deploying those, and that's great. But when I say there's no escape, it's not that I mean there's no escape from one's family because I don't want to escape from my family. Let me be very clear. Um, but there's nothing that you can. There, there's no outlet to reassert control over a part of your life to make you feel like you've got your hands around something. Like so, for example, like all I would really like to do, and I've told you this. For the last weeks, like what I really like to do is just, you know, be able to work for a couple of days, normal mm-hmm. yeah. office hours mm-hmm. and, you yeah. know, get some stuff done. Feel like I've, you know, pushed a rock up a hill that stayed there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You can, It doesn't. There's no there's no doing that. Like there's no there's no escape from the feeling of constant bewildered merry-go-round crazy. Um, 
So that's how I'm doing. Well, I would say, I mean, I do want to say I there is nothing better. There is nothing better than being um, a parent. In my experience, I have experienced no... And and being a parent with your wife, I have experienced no joy as uh, as profound or as meaningful or as satisfying um, as the prospect of um, uh, as the invitation into the fatherhood of God the Father. I mean, like sure, your your fatherhood is an invitation to God the Father, and and there's nothing more um, meaningful than that. In in there will be nothing more meaningful than that in uh, in in your life and my life. Um, and uh, and and there is a way in which that participates in the Trinity in a beautiful way. And being a father is just really really fun, but it is enduringly. Uh, hard so um so get used to it yeah i'm i'm used to being able to give laser like attention to things for periods mm-hmm. of time yeah, forget about it yeah yep and that that's the hardest part yeah well thank you dear friends for giving laser like attention to us the uh, pillar podcast is a production of pillar media and ed njd production i'm your host and pillar editor-in-chief jd flynn and i'm joined by ed content ed get some sleep not likely i got a newsletter to write <laughs>